Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Excellent. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to tell you why we're in this text in particular in just a second. So I don't know what you have nightmares about. Maybe you've had the nightmare where you end up going to school, but you don't have all your clothes. Anybody else had that one? Just me? Okay. I'm right there with you. Now, by the way, meaning I've only had the nightmare. I've always been to school fully clothed. Other times, I have a nightmare where somebody's chasing me, somebody's trying to stab me. I have a nightmare where there's giant spiders everywhere. I'm a very strange person, and that leads to some very strange nightmares. Well, one recurring nightmare I have is that I've been asked to preach with no preparation. I I have this all the time, all right? Like, I'll, I'll be in the dream, and I'll get up, and everybody's looking at me like you are now, and I'll think, oh man, I haven't prepared this sermon, but at least I have the Bible in front of me. Maybe I can wing it. And then I try to read the Bible, but I don't know if you know this or not, it's really hard to read in a dream because I don't have the whole Bible memorized. So I'm straining my eyes and I look up and people are looking at me and I'm like, what does this verse say? And I can't make it out. And I have this nightmare. I've had it, I don't know, probably five times. Well, this morning, the nightmare becomes a reality. I was not scheduled to preach. Jeff Ashley was supposed to preach this morning and I got a call at 9.30 last night. Uh, because he had to take his little girl to the emergency room. She had to have emergency surgery behind her ear for some infection. Uh, They had that surgery early this morning. So far, things are going well. They might need a second surgery, uh, and so we want to be in prayer for them. And so uh, I'm like, man, two things. One, I'm really sorry. Let us know if we can help you or your little girl. And two, I'm going to have to wing a sermon on Easter. Easter's like the Super Bowl for Christianity. So, uh, So here we go with that. So let's pray for God's grace. Before we get into this text, and let me pray for Jeff as we, uh, as we do so. Uh, uh, Father, we thank you that you're good and that you love us and you care for us. And we thank you that you sent Christ to live the life we should have lived but didn't, who died on a cross, which we deserve to die for our sins against you and who was raised from the grave, showing he is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is powerful. He's not merely just a man. And so we love you. We thank you for him. We want to lift up little Larkin. Uh, pray that your uh, just healing grace would be upon her and that you would be with the Ashleys. We love you. We thank you for this text. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Romans 4, 1 through 8. Here's why I chose this text. Uh, we were supposed to be in Romans 3. I didn't want to just take a text that I hadn't studied at all and go with it. I started studying this text last week because I was going to be preaching it in a few weeks. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to go here in Romans 4 today. And then over the next two weeks, we're going to go back into Romans 3, and then we'll keep going, okay? We're not going to miss anything. We're not going to skip anything in Romans. We have to do it a little bit out of order, so I do appreciate your grace uh, grace there. Now, this text is going to start with a figure, Father Abraham. Now, before I get into Father Abraham, I want to mention a few things. I am by no means an old man, but I realize that I'm getting a bit older, okay? I'm not young, but I'm not old. I'm kind of in this weird in-between stage. But there are a few things I've realized in my life that show that I'm getting older that I just want to share with you. Number one, I get hurt sleeping, right? Wake up in the morning. I have a crick in my neck. Something's hurting. And someone's like, what happened? Did you get hit by a linebacker? And I say, no, I was just laying in my bed unconscious. And this is how I woke up. That's one of the ways you know. Number two, I had to help somebody move last week. And I thought to myself, I need to stretch before helping them move. You know you're getting older when you have to stretch before moving. Now, again, I'm not super, I'm not like wear socks with sandals and get a metal detector at the beach old, but I am getting older in some of these things. I've started making what I call old man sounds, which are like this. You know that. You know if an older person's in the building because you'll hear those kind of sounds, and I've started making those, right? I'll come in the building and someone's like, Zach's here, and they just know from the grunting and such. 
I've realized that I'm getting a little bit older because uh, when I started getting a little gray hair, a little gray in my beard, a little gray uh, hair on my head, I would start plucking it. And then I started realizing I'm plucking a lot of hair. I'm starting to leave some bald spots here. And so I realized that I'm getting older. Another thing I realized, I enjoy a good sit. I enjoy a good sit. I'll sit down in a chair and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's the stuff, just from sitting. All of a sudden, I really care about good chairs. I told Katie, my wife, the other day, I was like, I think I want to take up bird watching. And she's like, that is the most unattractive thing. She didn't say it with her mouth, but she said it with her face. Okay? She said it with her face. And lastly, I just start caring less about stuff. I like to think that I've just become more holy and so I don't get caught up in the drama, but really it's just because I don't care, all right? Really it's just because I don't care. That's what happens as you get older. Now, the reason I tell you that is because this text is going to talk about a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is this guy in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a quick rehab. God makes everything, the one Trinitarian God of the Bible. He makes everything. Creation's great. Mankind rebels against God. Everything becomes broken. So God goes to a guy named Abraham. Abram later names him Abraham. And he basically says, through your descendants, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send somebody to fix what's gone wrong in the world. Now, Abraham doesn't believe it at first. Abraham thinks, I'm super old. Abraham is really old at this point, and his wife, Sarah, is really old. Her womb is dead, and God says, it doesn't matter. You're going to have kids, and one of those kids is going to fix the world, and that's who Christ is. And so the reason I talk about that is because we have to understand the oldness in a sense of Abraham to understand what God has asked Abraham to do is impossible. God will see him as righteous just by his faith and the God who can do the impossible, the God that can do the impossible. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 1 through 2, verses 1 through 2. Paul here is writing to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago that's mixed, a mixed congregation of Jew and Gentile. What is a Jew? A Jew is Abraham and anyone in his lineage. A Gentile is anyone else. Chapter 1 of Romans is the condemnation of the Gentile, where Paul will say, whether you have a Bible or not, you've still broken God's commands and you stand under his judgment. Chapter 2 is the condemnation of the Jew, where Paul will say, even if you have a Bible, you still break it and fall under the condemnation of God. Chapter 3 was the condemnation of everybody. And then finally, we get into some good news here. So the Apostle Paul is going to start still talking to the Jews when he says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, let me tell you why this is important. If you are Jewish, Abraham is your poster boy. He's your guy. He is the prototypical Jew. He is seen as faithful. In the type of Judaism going on in the first century when the Apostle Paul is writing this letter here to the church at Rome, Abraham was seen by the Jews as somebody who was righteous because of his righteous living. Okay? So if you're, if you're a Jew in the first century and you say, what do you think about Abraham? You would say this. Abraham was righteous. He did all these good things. And therefore, God saw him as righteous. Abraham did these good things, and therefore, God saw him as righteous. The Apostle Paul is going to absolutely turn that on its head. He's going to absolutely turn that on its head. He's going to say, and this is true in Christianity, Christianity is not, I do, and therefore, I'm saved. It's, I'm saved by faith in Christ alone, and therefore, I do. But I want to show you some texts that, uh, that show how Jews thought that Abraham was perfect, that he, they thought Abraham was just killing it, and that's why God decided to use Abraham. Let me show you some texts. These come out of not the Bible. So if I put these texts up on here and you're like, what kind of weird Bible is this? These are not in the Bible. These are Jewish sources that talk about Abraham just so you can see what Jews thought about him in the first century. I want to show you the first one here. This comes out of Sirach. I know you guys all did a good devotional out of Sirach this morning. Sirach 44, 19 through 21 says this. 
Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh. That's a reference to circumcision. And when he was tested, he proved faithful. Therefore, the Lord assured him with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, that he would make him as numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the stars and give them an inheritance from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. This was a text that Jews would have been familiar with before the time of Paul that basically says, Abraham's killing it. He's crushing it. He's like the SEAL Team 6 Jedi Master of Judaism, okay? He's crushing it. Here's another one. Jubilees 23.10. For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing and righteous all the days in his life. See, they, some of the Jews thought Abraham was perfect. Jubilees 24.11. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thy father obeyed my voice. That's talking about Father Abraham. And kept my charge and my covenants and my laws and my ordinances and my covenant and now obey my voice and dwell in this land. The next one comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is what's called the Damascus document, CD 3.2. Abraham was accounted a friend of God because he kept the commandments of God and did not choose his own will. Prayer of Manasseh 8. Therefore, O Lord God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous. I'm sorry, let me, let me read that again like I know how to read. That was like the gospel according to Porky Pig. Hold on. Therefore, you, O Lord God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning they don't even need repentance, who did not sin against you. But you have appointed repentance for me who am a sinner. Now, here's why I tell you this. None of this is in the Bible because all of this is unbiblical. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Within the audience that Paul is writing to, they think that Abraham did all these good things, and therefore, that's why God liked him. Therefore, that's why God chose him. The apostle Paul is going to say that the exact opposite is the case, that God chose Abraham by grace despite the fact that he was ungodly, and therefore, he walked in righteousness. Again, you've got to get this. The difference between being a Christian and not, the difference between heaven and hell is this. Christianity is not, I do and therefore I'm loved. It's I'm loved and therefore I do. God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, his salvation comes before anything we do, not as a result of it. Okay, look at, the, look at verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, meaning something Abraham could do, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Let me say this as strongly as I can say it. God hates when you try to earn his favor. He hates legalism. If you're here today and you're a visitor and you're wondering, what does God want from me? He doesn't want you to do better or clean yourself up. He wants you to believe in Jesus. That's why you're here. You're here to become a Christian if that's what you're wondering. That's what he wants. God hates when we try to earn his love, when we try to earn our righteousness. He hates it. Legalism, which is where you're trying to earn God's favor, is dangerous for three reasons according to this text. Okay? The first one is this. The first one is this we have a tendency to think that legalistic sin is somehow less dangerous than wild living. So if you put it on a spectrum, there are some people that say, forget the rules, I'll just do whatever I want. That's called licentiousness. The idea of that word is you have license to sin. On the other end of the spectrum is you have what's called legalism, where you try to earn God's favor by keeping all the rules. We have a tendency to think that legalism is somehow a safer sin than licentiousness. Now all that out there, that's wild living, that's what the world does, that's living like the devil, but I'll be safe over here as I try to earn God's favor instead of accepting his grace, and God despises it. He hates it. The second fear and problem with legalism is that uh, you think God is asking you to do it. If you struggle with legalism, you always think it's God saying, you better do better, you better try harder, you better strive more. And what this text is going to say is that faith is not striving, faith is not trying harder, faith is resting, it is believing. And the third thing, and this is what verse 2 specifically speaks about, 
If any percent of your salvation is up to you, you rob God of glory. You rob God of glory. If 99% of salvation is up to him and 1% of salvation is up to you, for all eternity, you get to give 99 songs of praise to God and one song of praise to you. For all of eternity, you get to pat yourself on the back a little bit because you were such a good person or such a smart decision maker or something and you think that's why God saved you. What verse 2 is going to say, for if Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham was seen as righteous by God because of what he did, then he has a right to boast. Then he has a right to boast. For all of eternity, he gets a little bit of the glory. And this text will say, you don't know who God is. Not before God. No one gets to boast. Salvation is 100% something God does through and through. You want a part in your salvation, you had a big part, you got lost. God will cover everything else. God will cover everything else. Okay? That's what this is saying. Beware of thinking you earn God's salvation. Watch out for the legalism because if Abraham was justified that way, then he can boast. It's better to be the whore that cries at Jesus' feet than the legalistic church-going Pharisee that receives his condemnation. Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis 15, 6. And by the way, do you know where the first mention of the word believe happens in the Bible? Genesis 15, 6, this very thing that the Apostle Paul is quoting from. In Genesis, God tells Abraham that you're going to have a bunch of kids. And again, Abraham is super old, okay? He drives a Lincoln Town car. He has on his staff, at the bottom of his staff, he has a cut tennis ball so he can slide it around. Okay, he's super old. This is beyond what he can do. And so he's seen as righteous simply by trusting God, simply by having faith, simply by believing. Here's what's interesting about Christianity. It is unlike everything else in your life because everything else in your life, you earn. If you have a job, you have to work for that. You have to get credentials or get an education or learn a trade or learn skills. You have to interview well. You have to get up early. You have to fight traffic. You've got to please your boss. You've got to try not to lose your job. You've got to travel for business. You have to work for that job and you get paid a wage. If you're trying to stay in shape, you have to work. You have to discipline yourself, and you can't eat French fried bacon, and you have to work out, and you have to do these things, and you're rewarded with health. If you have a spouse, you have to work to get a spouse. Your hope is that you can hold it together long enough to trick someone into marrying you. You have to work to get that spouse. You have to bring her flowers, and you have to have good conversation, and you have to not come across as a weirdo, and you have to not do magic tricks at the table, and these kind of things. You have to work for the spouse, and then you have to work to keep a spouse. You have to work through that relationship. You have to work through sins. You have to talk about things that are difficult. You have to work to have kids. You have to work to raise kids, and they're up at 2 in the morning, and they're throwing up, and you've got to take them to the emergency room like Jeff had to with his daughter, and you have to work for these kids. You have to work for schooling. If you want to get your education, you've got to get your bachelor's, and then get your master's, and then get your PhD. You have to study. You have to take tests. You have to learn languages. You have to do all these kind of things. Christianity is the lone exception. Christianity is the only thing where it is completely free to you. That you simply receive a gift with open hands of faith. That's one of the things that makes Christianity Christianity. If you want to go try to earn your salvation, you're in the wrong religion. You can go become a Mormon or a Muslim or something else. You can become something else if you want to earn your salvation. Christianity is for broken people who cannot. Christianity is for people who need grace. And this text is going to say, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. He didn't earn. He didn't strive. He was seen as righteous before he went and did all the things that he was supposed to do. Okay? I want you to see this also. 
Look, it says this, for what does the Scripture say? By the way, I just want to say this. This is saying that justification by faith is an Old Testament idea. We have a tendency to think people in the Old Testament were saved by following all these laws, and people in the New Testament are saved just by trusting Jesus. What Paul is going to say is, no, 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 you've always been saved by faith. You've always been saved just by trusting a God who's loving and merciful, who provides a means of atonement, whether you're in the Old Testament looking forward to a Messiah or you're in the New Testament looking back at a Messiah. That's always how it's going to come. That's why he's quoting the Scripture here. But I also want you to see this. For what does, it say, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed who? God. Let me tell you something that I heard a lot growing up. I heard something that was known as the Word of Faith movement, the Prosperity Gospel, TBN, Kenneth Copeland, these kind of weirdos, okay? If you like those guys, I do not apologize because they're the worst. One of them's name is Creflo Dollar. That is the greatest name for somebody who rips people off I've ever heard, okay? And a lot of, one of the things these guys would say is, if you are not wealthy or you are not healthy or things are going bad in your life, it's because you don't have enough faith. What you need to do is you need to conjure up more faith, as if it was a work. Like, you've got to strain yourself to try to have no doubt, and that's what faith would look like. And if you're sick or things are going bad, it's because you don't have enough faith, despite the fact that things go really bad for Jesus and things go really bad for Paul and for basically all Christians in church history, okay? Notice here that the Apostle Paul defines faith not in believing that the thing you're praying for will absolutely happen, but he defines faith in trusting a person, or rather a trinity of persons, in trusting God. Faith is not how hard you believe something. It's do you believe in God? Do you believe that He loves you, that He cares for you, that He's got you, that everything's okay in Christ? That's what faith is. We've said this several times here, that weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith. And that's what the apostle will point out here. Now, I want to introduce you to three Latin words. See, you thought you'd just get up, have an Easter sermon, someone's going to ask you what you did, and you're going to say, a guy in a weird green golf shirt yelled at me and taught us three Latin words. Let me share with you these three words. Can you put them up on the screen? These are three Latin words that the Reformers used to talk about faith, okay? I'm going to pronounce them in Latin, then I will pronounce them in English the way I'm going to say them. The first is notitia, which I'm going to say notitia. The second one is asensus, which I'm going to say asensus. And the last one is fiducia, which I'm going to say is fiducia, okay? Now, this, these are the three words that the Reformers used to talk about saving faith in God, okay? The first one, notitia, refers to the content of something, okay? Notitia refers to the content of faith or the things that we believe. The facts of who Jesus is, the facts that he died on a cross, the facts that he was raised from the dead, that would be notitia. There are certain facts you have to believe to be a Christian. If you don't know about Jesus, you don't know he died for your sins, you don't know that he was raised from the grave, you don't have enough facts to be saved to know the gospel, okay? The second one, a census, a census, is that you believe that those facts are true, okay? So not only do you have to know certain facts in Christianity, you have to believe that they're true, if you think that Jesus, you know, you've heard that Jesus was raised from the dead, but you don't believe it, that's not saving faith. So notitia is the facts you have to know. A census is that you have to believe that those facts are true, but it's the last one that really is the place where I want you to, to focus on. Fiducia. What is a fiduciary responsibility? It involves trust, a trust, right? Fiducia means that you actually rest in something. You actually trust it. You actually believe it. All three of these are needed for salvation. If I want to be saved, I have to know certain facts about the gospel, who Jesus is. He's God's son. He's eternal. Uh, he's truly God and truly man. He died for, on a cross for my sins. Uh, he was raised from the grave, etc. I have to know certain facts. I have to believe that those facts are true. But lastly, and maybe most importantly, I have to actually rest in those facts. I have to actually accept them. I have to believe in them. It's been said that the difference between heaven and hell is one foot away, the difference between head and heart. 
Does the devil have noticia? Does he know the facts about the gospel? He does. Does the devil have a census? Does he believe that those things are true? He does. But he does not have fiducia. He does not have fiducia. What this text is going to say is that Abraham, in his trusting of God, he trusts God. He doesn't just say, God, I affirm that you said these facts. He rests in them. He believes in them. Okay? I want you to see another thing here in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was, what's the word there? What's the word there? Yeah, good. Okay, counted, right? Counted or uh, reckoned, okay? This comes from the Greek word legizomai. The Greek word legizomai is a mathematical or an accounting term. It's like a banking term. And the idea is having to do with crediting something, right? So what this text is saying is that something, in a sense, is credited to Abraham's account, even though he was ungodly, that it's accounted to. I want you to see this. Even if you don't know the Greek word, five times in this text that we're looking at today, is there this idea of trusting, or I'm sorry, is there this idea of uh, counting righteous? Five times in this text, verses 1 through 8, it will say they were counted righteous, our sin is not counted to us, it is reckoned to us. That's the kind of language that's going on here. So let me explain something real quick to you and the difference between a Protestant versus a Catholic view of justification, okay? In Roman Catholicism, righteousness or justification is something you actually become. It's something you actually become in Roman Catholicism. So when you do your infant baptism, you become a little more righteous, when you partake of the Eucharist and the Mass, you become a little more righteous. When you say a Hail Mary, you become a little more righteous. When you do penance, you become a little more righteous. And you become more and more righteous over time, okay? And Roman Catholic thinking, righteousness is something you become. And Protestant thinking, like here at Parkway, so if you grew up Protestant, what is a Protestant? It's a Christian that's not a Roman Catholic. So whether that's Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, etc. In Protestant theology, righteousness is something you're declared to be. God looks at me, and I'm actually sinful. He can't say that I'm righteous because he'd be a liar, because I'm actually sinful. So what does he do? He sees me as being righteous because I'm in Christ. So in Catholic thinking, righteousness is something you become. In Protestant thinking, righteousness is something you're declared to be. Which one of those two views is taught clearly here in Romans 4? The second one, the Protestant one, that Abraham is declared to be righteous, God sees him as righteous. He takes righteousness, in a sense, and credits it to his bank account based upon faith. And you don't just see that in the New Testament. I want to show you a few verses from the Old Testament where that's the idea. Proverbs 17, 15. We're going to throw them up on the screen. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Notice that that's something they're declared to be. I, I can't say that justifies there to the wicked means I'm saying they're actually righteous. The text says that they're wicked. It means I'm saying that they're righteous when they're actually wicked. Or I'm saying that they're wicked when they're actually righteous. Notice that justification in both the Old and the New Testament is something you're declared to be. Exodus 23, 7. For I will not acquit, literally, in the Hebrew it says justify the wicked. Right? God's not talking about making the wicked right. He's talking about I, I'm not going to say that they're not wicked. I will not acquit. I'll not let go the wicked. It's something you're declared to be. Isaiah 5, 23. Who acquit, literally, justify the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Notice that's not something they actually are. The text says that they are guilty. It's what they're declared to be. So what I'm saying is this. What we do is we look at our lives and we say, how well am I doing before God? How are, how are God and I doing? And we look at ourselves and we get discouraged because we think, man, I've got a lot of sin in my life. And the reason is, and the reason we get discouraged is because we don't understand what the Bible teaches about justification. You never have to look at yourself to see how you're doing in God's eyes again. You only need to look at Christ. 
We are declared to be 100% righteous. God as a judge has slammed down his gavel and said, though you've committed the crime, someone has gone to death row for you, so I see you as not guilty. And then you say, but I, I did it. And he says, it doesn't matter. It's been forgiven. It's been washed away. It's already been paid for. Justification is something we are declared to be. Verses four through five. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the who? Ungodly. By the way, in Greek, that word can be translated godless. Paul just said, in talking about Abraham, who's like the hero of Judaism. You guys remember the old commercials of like, I want to be like Mike, and you would buy his tennis shoes? In Judaism, it's, I want to be like Father Abraham. They would wear Air Abrahams, which helped them like ride a camel faster, strap on those sandals. He was their guy. And the Apostle Paul is saying that he's godless that he's ungodly. Justify the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. If salvation is obtained by you having to go do something, then you've put God in your debt. If salvation is obtained by you doing some action or cleaning yourself up or being more righteous or doing some religious ritual, then salvation is something not that's a gift that God gives you where he gets the glory. It's something that he owes you. It's something that you've put God in your debt. You are all of a sudden the one in charge, and God now owes you a debt. And he is saying that that is absolutely crazy because God wants salvation to be by grace, that we don't obtain it through doing these works, but simply by trusting in God's grace, simply by trusting in what he's done in Christ. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what he's owed, his due, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is what is known in theology as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. How do I get God to see me as righteous when I'm not? You cannot earn it. You simply trust in Christ, and God sees you as being as righteous as Christ. That's his answer. Now, what some people will do is they will critique us as Protestants, and they will say, well, Zach, the word alone isn't in there. It just says he believes in God. It doesn't say faith alone saves. The problem with that thinking is it doesn't really understand how language works. If I tell you to go to the store and pick up a gallon of milk, that means pick up a gallon of milk alone. You know by the fact that I didn't also say get diapers and walnuts and these kind of things that you're just supposed to get milk. But the text goes further than that. It says that you're saved by faith and not by works. If I tell you go to the store and get a gallon of milk and don't get anything else, that means get milk alone. That's what it means. What this text is saying is that you are justified. You're seen as righteous by God. And by the way, the way God sees you is the most real thing in the world. As I say, God, the way God sees you, don't think that's somehow less real. That's the most real thing. His opinion is the only one that matters. That uh, as you trust in Christ, that you are seen as 100% righteous, though you yourself, like me, has lived in sin. Look up at verse 5 again. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Salvation is obtained not by doing but simply by believing in something God has promised you. Faith is where you stop calling God a liar and where he's promised that he loves those in Christ that you realize that you're loved and you stop calling him a liar. I grew up in a denomination that taught something different than us. I grew up in a denomination that taught you were justified by baptism and then you had to uh, do a bunch of these things throughout your life to make sure you didn't lose your salvation. That's not what this text says. This text is saying Abraham believed God's promise first and God saw him as righteous and then he went and got circumcised later. We'll see that later on in Romans 4. But you're saved just through the believing. 
Ephesians 1, 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Just by hearing the gospel and believing, that's how you're saved. In Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius, and he and his household get the Holy Spirit just by hearing the gospel preached. Baptism comes later. They already have the Spirit. They're already saved. They're already justified. That's what this text is going to say. Grace is not unmerited favor. It's demerited favor. It's demerited favor. It's not that we're just neutral. We're in the, is it red or black, which is bad? I can't remember. Is it red? It's also like bear and bull. I'm like, good, we've got a bear market. I don't know which one's good, all right? You were in the red. I was in the red. We were negative, and we are only seen as being righteous in Christ. Now, I want to show you a little chart that I had Tim put together at 11 o'clock last night, okay? Can you throw that up there? Okay. I got a chance. I've got a buddy of mine who uh, has a church in College Station. Oh, okay. Well, there they were. All right. There, there's, the, there's the Aggies in the room. And also in Austin. I'm kidding. Okay. We're not doing that. Okay. So I have a buddy who's got, planted a church in College Station, and in College Station, there's a lot of Catholics. And uh, he said, Zach... We're doing this thing on the Reformation. Last year was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Do you want to come talk about the Protestant Reformation? Because we've got a bunch of Catholic people in our church. And I said, I would love to do so. And so I showed them this chart. But before I did, here's how my buddy introduced me, okay? He didn't say, this is my buddy, Zach. He's going to teach us. He said, this is my buddy, Zach. And he actually used to be a Catholic priest. But he got kicked out of the Catholic church because he would only wear that little collar they wear with no shirt. (laughs) That's how he introduced me. He never said it was a joke. So they think I was all excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church because of nudity, and that for some reason I would just wear the collar and pants and no shirt and just preach. And that's how I started out. But I got a chance to show them this. I want to show you this. This is the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant view of justification, okay? In Roman Catholicism, justification is progressive. It's something you can grow into. You become more and more and more righteous as you partake of the sacraments, as you do these other things. In Protestantism, it's instantaneous. I am the most wretched sinner on earth, and at the moment of repentance and faith in Christ, I am then seen as 100% perfect, 100% righteous, right just like that, just like that. In Roman Catholicism, righteousness is imparted. It's something that you become. It's God's righteousness, but there's also a sense in which they believe in what's called real intrinsic merit, that you become more worthy of God's love as time goes on, whereas in Protestantism, it's imputed, meaning it's given to you. God reckons you as righteous, though you're not, because Christ was righteous. Think of Christ as a big circle. He's not a circle. He's the God-man. But think of him as a circle. When you're in that circle by faith, what's true of him is true of you. He's seen as righteous. You're seen as righteous. He's loved by God. You're loved by God. He's perfect. You're seen as perfect, etc. Okay? In Roman Catholicism, salvation or righteousness or justification is something you actually become, whereas in Protestantism, it's something you're declared to be. Okay? You're declared to be. In Roman Catholicism, it's intrinsic, In Protestantism, it's extrinsic, extrinsic. It's outside of you. The phrase that Protestant reformers would use that it's an eustitia aliana, an alien righteousness. It doesn't mean like E.T. alien. It means outside of you. It's foreign. It belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ, and that's why it's declared to be yours by faith. In Roman Catholicism, righteousness is greater in some than in others. Greater in some than in others, okay? So let me ask you this question. Who's more righteous, Carl Brower or me? Well, as a Protestant view, it's equal. We're equally seen as righteous by God. Who's more righteous, Tim Hollis or me? Me, all right? (laughs) In Roman Catholicism, it can be greater in some than in others because it's progressive. You grow in righteousness. But in the way we believe that the Bible would teach it is that it's equal in all. If you're a new Christian, 
or you're someone who's been a Christian for 40 years, God's love for you is the same because your righteousness has always been Christ's righteousness. It's not your righteousness, it's Christ's. And then lastly, how do you obtain righteousness in Roman Catholicism? It's by faith plus. Faith plus partaking of the sacraments, faith plus doing works of charity and works of love and these kind of things. We as Protestants believe that it's just by faith alone. I simply am a sinner and I come before God and I say, I can't earn it. Jesus lived the life for me. He earned my salvation. Jesus died on the cross because I deserve to get hit by God because I've sinned. Jesus got hit for me. And simply by kneeling and bowing before Christ and asking him to save you and submitting your life to him, where you call him Lord and you call him Savior, you're seen by God as 100% righteous, loved, forgiven. That's it. That's it. This is what is called sola fide. You hear that word? Remember the word fiducia we used? Fide is linked to that, by faith alone, by trusting Christ alone. I want you to see two more verses here before we move on to the next text. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. There's the wages idea. Again, wage is something you earn. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's free. You cannot earn it. Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is a story that's told in the Gospels. Listen to this story. It's powerful. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors are seen as the prototypical sinners. They're seen as traitors because they forsook Israel to serve Rome, and they were also sleazy and took more money than they should. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now look at this next line. I tell you, this man went down to his house. What's the word? Justified. Not that he was righteous, he was a sinner, but he's seen as righteous before God because of his faith rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me tell you about this before I go on to our last little section here. This is the third church where I've gotten to pastor. The first church that I was at, I had to resign from because of terrible depression and anxiety. I've mentioned this before. I don't know if you struggle with depression or anxiety, but if so, maybe this will encourage you. I was four months into my pastorate there, and my wife came in to see how I was doing in my study as I was preparing for this sermon, and I was laying in the fetal position, bawling my eyes out. And she's like, what is happening? And I'm like, I have no idea. I couldn't sleep. I was having demonic nightmares. I had a nightmare where the devil was yelling condemnations in my face. How about that? Uh, I had trouble getting out of bed in the morning. I would just sit there and cry. Uh, I had trouble eating. I couldn't eat anything. I was losing weight because I just wouldn't eat. I was too anxious. I was too stressed. I was too depressed. We actually had to buy like power bars and these nutrition supplements and these kind of things. That way, if I just felt a little bit hungry, I could throw down some kind of nutrition just to stop from withering away. I was having thoughts of suicide and things were awful. And here's what I was wrestling with. Maybe salvation isn't free to me. Maybe I have to earn it. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe my faith isn't strong enough. Maybe I'm just deceived. Maybe God's mad at me. Maybe I need to do more actions. Maybe I need to try harder. Maybe salvation's not as free as it seems to be. And it was those thoughts that led me into a depression, and I eventually had to resign. Do you know what text helped me get through that during that time? Romans 4, 5, 4 through 5. I taped it up on my window taped it up on my mirror in my bathroom because it's just so clear. It's just so clear. Now to the one who works, meaning does something, does anything, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Paul's already said that's not going to work. Verse five, and to the one who does not work, 
but believes. He contrasts working and believing. They're not the same thing. They're different. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's who receives God's mercy. His faith is counted as righteousness. In Roman Catholicism, it's kind of like this. Say that you enroll in a school, okay? You enroll in a a college or a university. You take credits, you take credits, you take credits, you take credits, and then you get your degree, okay? Then you get your degree. That's kind of what it's like in Roman Catholicism. As you become more educated, eventually the school says, you're educated. So here's a piece of paper showing that, okay? In Protestantism, though, it's the opposite. In Protestantism, as soon as you put your faith in Christ, it's like you've enrolled in Jesus University, and on day one, you get your degree. Day one, you get a PhD with all the rights and privileges thereunto appertaining. And then classes start the very next day, and they continue for the rest of your life. That's the difference, is that you're declared to be righteous. You're seen as righteous in God's sight. Is a Christian a sinner, yes or no? Yes in the fact that we still commit sins. No in the sense that God only sees us as perfect. Our status before God is not sinners if we know Christ. Luther had a popular phrase in the Reformation, simul justus et peccator, that Christians are simultaneously justified and a sinner. We're justified in God's sight, though we still commit sinful actions in our day-to-day life. Verses 6 through 8, and then we'll be done. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So David's saying this, Not only are we justified by faith in Christ alone, Abraham was justified by faith in Christ alone. And he says, let me give you another example of somebody that talks about this, King David. King David. You see, Abraham is seen as righteous by faith. King David talks about the person who's not seen as unrighteous. So there's both a positive and a negative element to this. Look at the text again. I want to show you what I mean. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Notice that's a positive accounting. God sees you as righteous, but he's also going to not see you as something. Look at verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So you're counted righteous in Christ, but you're also not counted sinful. This is what is known in theology as double imputation. Your sin goes to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is accounted to you. Your sin goes to him, so you're no longer seen as a sinner. Your sin is poured out on him. He pays for your sin, and you are seen as righteous because you are in Christ. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that teaches this. Let me give you a few more verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, that's Christ, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice Jesus gets my sin. I'm seen as righteous because I'm in Christ. This is even an Old Testament concept. We just saw that with David. Let me give you one out of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Christ, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. We will be seen as righteous because of Christ. He takes our sin. He takes our sin. Let me end with this. I've got two kids, and if you're wondering, are they super adorable? The answer is yes. My littlest one, her name is Isla Gray, and she is eight months old, okay? She is the most pasty person I've ever seen. She might be albino, all right? She's super pasty. Her hair is blonde, but kind of like polar bear where you can see through the hair blonde. Her eyes are piercing blue. Her skin is like a little Michelin tire guy, all right? She looks like she's from Iceland or something. Her legs just have these huge fat rolls. It looks like you took two socks and just poured gravy in them. Those are her little legs. Adorable. And she has a temper, though. 
She's sweet when she's fed, but as soon as she gets mad, she's like, I want milk and I want it now. And she'll grab my beard and rip it out, even though she can't talk. That's what she's saying. My son, Judah, is very sensitive, right? Very sensitive. Sometimes little boys are kind of rough and tumble. They'll just run off an edge. They'll run into a wall. They, they just go. He's always been very cautious. He'll go up to a step and he'll get down on all fours and he'll climb down. And he'll go up and he doesn't want to go on a certain slide because it's too high and too scary. Now, if you have a sensitive son, what a lot of guys do is they push that kid to become brave or become tough, and the kid ends up doing the opposite. You ever seen that dad that's screaming at his son playing t-ball and the kid's got tears running down his face because his dad's a jerk? And so I noticed that my son, I want him to grow in bravery. I want him to grow in courage. I want him to grow in toughness, but he's very sensitive. So what do I do? Here's what I do. I declare him to be tough to him. I say, son, daddy sees you as brave. Daddy sees you as tough. Daddy sees you as courageous. He's not actually. He's very sensitive. But I say, when I look at you, I want you to hear this. You are going to be a tough boy. You are brave. You're courageous. And then what happens is he starts to grow into that. Daddy thinks I'm brave. And so now I'm starting to see it. Now he'll go on the slide. Now he'll take a step off the edge. Even though he's scared, he's like, hand? I'm like, no, I'm not going to hold your hand. Ta-da! And he'll do it. He in and of himself is not brave. But what his dad is doing is saying, I see you as brave. I see you as mighty. I see you as strong. You're, you're a strong boy. You're, you're a strong man. Now, the analogy is not perfect because there hasn't been one who's actually been brave on his behalf. But I think you get the point that I'm making. The way that we grow in righteousness is not by trying to grow in righteousness. It's by hearing God, who is a loving father, say to us, I see you as righteous. I see you as perfect. I see you as spotless. And in the case with God, that actually is true because Christ has actually earned it for us. He's actually been righteous on our behalf. God's not just lying. God's not just saying those things. They're true because of Christ. And another thing I tell him all the time is this. I said, Judah, do you know that Daddy loves you? He goes, yeah. And I say, that's how he talks. That was a spot on Judah, by the way, if you know him. I say, does Daddy love you when you're happy? Yeah. Does Daddy love you when you're sad? Yeah. Does Daddy love you when you disobey? Yeah. Does daddy love you when you obey? Yes. Does daddy love you when you need a spanking? Yes. Daddy loves you all the time. Daddy loves me all the time. I'm trying to get him to realize that my love for him is not based upon him. It's based upon me. My love for him is not based upon him and his actions. My love is based upon me. How much more so is that true of a God who's unchanging, of a God who needs nothing from you? I need stuff. I'm tired. He can get on my nerves. But God doesn't need anything from us. That's why he's free just to love us unconditionally. That's why he's free just to love us unconditionally. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and I'm going to have the men come forward who are helping serve communion. If you're somebody who doesn't know Jesus, would you know him this morning? Would you sit there right in your, your seat as we pray, and would you just ask Jesus to save you? Ask him if he's real to reveal himself to you. Maybe do that. Maybe you're, you're a skeptic or something like that, and you just say, I don't know if any of this Christianity stuff's real. If so, would you show me? What God wants from you is not for you to try harder or for you to do better. He wants you to realize Christ has done better on your behalf. He wants you just to trust in Christ. Stop trying to earn your righteousness through works and simply believe in him who justifies the ungodly by faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you only because Christ has made a way and you've given us the spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so we thank you so much for your care, your love. I thank you for this text uh, that is just, you've used it so powerfully in my life just to beat into my head that I can't earn your love, that Christ has earned it on my behalf. And so I pray for anyone else in here that struggles with that. Anyone else who's just trying to make you happy by being a good person, I pray that they would stop and that they would just be awful and be loved. That we wouldn't just try to not be awful, 
but rather we would just be awful and be loved because Christ has not been awful on our behalf. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for this Easter Sunday where we have faith in the resurrection, where you raise us to new life by faith. I thank you that the ideas of justification and resurrection go together. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, what are we doing? We're wasting our time. Who cares if there's some guy's bones rotting over in Palestine? But because you have raised Christ, everything's going to be okay for those that know him. So we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.